there. Welcome to SpicFic NZ podcast, where we bring you the authors that aren't afraid to ask what if. I'm Matt Danaher, and I mostly write unpublished short stories. I'm Kura Carpenter. I'm a Dunedin fantasy author. My debut novel, The Kingfisher's Debt, has come, just come out recently. And I'm Nick Whitaker, and I have nine novels that are indie published at the moment. Today, we're going to talk about what we wished we knew before being published. My two co-hosts are, um, I'm going to listen and ask questions, as you've both got way more experience than I have. And Cora, I think you were going to go first. So I'm traditionally published, um, and I chose that um, uh, I chose that purposefully. When I, um, when I set out to be published in whatever format, traditional was my main goal two reasons for that the first being that I'm horrendously old and that was just always the way that it was done you either got traditionally published or there was no other option there was a second option but it was called vanity publishing back in the day and essentially it just meant that you had a product um, uh, that wasn't worth (laughs) that you couldn't sell basically You, you could you couldn't sell it and whether the story was quality or not the perception was that it wouldn't be quality mostly which came down to the fact that it wasn't going to be edited properly. And that sort of leads into my second rule, my second reason rather for choosing traditional is um, I'm really cheap and there's no way I wanted to pay those editing costs to self-publish because expensive, you know, to get a book freshly edited can, can cost, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. And really that does depend on what state your manuscript is in. That, those were my two goals was it's just that's, that's how I assumed writing was done. You got traditionally published. And two, I didn't want to pay for it myself. What about you, next? Well, for me, I kind of knew that I would never actually go the traditional path, mainly because, well, we're in New Zealand and it's kind of hard to get hold of the the big uh, five type stuff. And I always wrote kind of, well, pulp fiction type thing, you know, the stuff that you would have uh, the bodice rippers type thing and uh, five bucks on the, the grocery store shelf type thing. And the traditionally published stuff aren't taking those anymore. So they don't do Pulp Fiction anymore. And so I knew that it had passed by. And so uh, if I wanted to get published, I would have to find it my own way. And totally agree with the vanity publishing. Run, run away from those. I have heard so many horror stories about people spending something like $50,000 to get their book wow. published through a, a vanity publishing thing. I can tell you that uh, with the help of some friends and some beta readers and other swaps with authors and things like that, I can bring my costs down of editing down to maybe about three, $400, and I do my own covers. If you are clever, you can actually bring the cost down. But yes, indie publishing is expensive. Um, but it was actually a friend that uh, started it. He uh, indie published his own book, and it looked really good. It looked like what you would find on the on the shelf and things like that. And I thought, wow, if he can do it, so can I. And so that's how it started with me. Times have changed, and with the power of the internet and yep. Amazon Kindle, because I was really looking at getting traditionally published, like in about 2010. This is when I was seriously looking at it, and just between then and now, uh, oh, yeah, the big changes. Changed so yeah. much yeah yeah so pulp fiction's now gone on to indie so if you want to find those um romance novels or those t- kind of action adventure books that you pick up and you read on on 
on your commute to work type thing on the train. Those are all now indie published. You won't find them uh, done by traditional uh, publishers anymore. And the thing that always annoyed me about um, vanity publishing in the true sense of it, where they would just yeah basically conning you for your money, is it doesn't have to be that way because you're no, paying for it doesn't. anyway. They could hire a decent editor and you could then produce a decent book. That's what annoys yeah. me. Yeah, um, I should tell you. To be getting the service. Yeah, I should tell you that a lot of the big names in the indie, uh, the vanity publishing, and I'm not going to mention any of them, but they're actually owned by the big five publishing groups. So yeah, they're actually, rumors. yeah, they're, um, they're kind of using authors as a stream of uh, revenue and revenue, they know yeah. they're doing it and they just stick another name on it so they can get away with it. So, yeah, very, very shady dealings with the Vanity Press uh, type things. There are kind of, they renaming some of them, so be careful of the hybrid ones as well. Some of them are quite shady, but some of them are just offering services and just trying to do their best, especially with the smaller ones. But it's really hard to find the, the difference yeah. between them. Just one of the one of the things I've been looking for um, as someone who's really mainly interested in, in kind of going down the indie publishing route and also as someone who, who's lived a lot of their life in London and actually was lucky enough to associate with a, with a number of small presses um, in particular that focus specialise on political in political but but has had some understanding of that kind of small press side of publishing there's there's kind of two things really one is is looking at there's been a growth in in small presses essentially for fiction which kind of seem to offer a halfway house between publishing and indie publishing and are legit yeah Uh, Mm. Yeah. well Um, and then there's also those kind of something i've been looking for is you know if i do go down the self-publishing route i want to get it professionally um, professionally edited i want to get professional proofreaders i want to get professional cover designer Actually, it'd be really cool for me to be able to go and do a one-stop shop, which would kind of do a wraparound <laughs> service. But when you're looking on the internet, it's actually quite hard to work out which ones which genuine <laughs> services, which are the vanity. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, and that is always a problem. Really, it really depends also on your budget, how much you're willing to spend oh, yeah. for those services, or able I, to spend. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. I think possibly that's why you get a lot of retired people that go for those services. Think right, I'll I'll spend X, Y, and Z, and then uh, I'll end up with a quality product at the end of it. I also think the one question you got to ask yourself when you're going to go and indie publish, if you're publishing something because it's your baby and you think it's a marvelous book and and it's kind of like something that only you would read. Mm. Even if you indie publish it, they're still technically a vanity publishing. The moment you start thinking about your audience and thinking of what yes. they want to read, then you are a publisher. You are, yep. yeah, that's different. So yeah. you've got to ask yourself, what are you putting out there and why are you putting it out there? Completely. That's really good advice. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely food for thought there. So what you're saying is that basically it's when you're writing to market is when you're actually publishing. Well, the audience, it can be very small niche markets. Mm. Yeah. So I'm not saying it has to be a big market that you've got to be writing for uh, because yeah. that's the bliss of uh, indie publishing is that they're filling up these niches that uh, yeah. traditionally published uh, groups just can't fill. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's because, yeah, because the traditionally published books couldn't sell enough to no. make it worthwhile, their printing costs and their editing costs and all that kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, in terms of audience, like memoirs are a really good example. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, you know, yeah, your great aunt Joan or whatever has lived her life and now she wants to tell the young'uns about it. 
And so your audience is basically, no offence to Grey Aunt Joan. It's your family. It's going to be your immediate family. Mm-hmm. And that's where, um, you know, that there's, basically there's no audience for that book outside of your family because people outside of your family have no context for her life. Yeah. If you live an ordinary life. Yeah, unless you worked uh, with somebody famous or climbed Everest or, or that type of thing, yeah, your memoir is just for your family. That's right. There's, there's nothing relatable <laughs> about her yeah. life, is there? That, that's, yeah. what it, that's what it needs to be. Yeah, mm. that, that's, people, that's what people just don't realise in terms of marketing and in terms of your audience. Yeah. Because, yeah, if, if you live that life, then obviously you think, you know, it was interesting or whatever, which is why you bother to write it down. But yeah. people people's visions are a bit narrow. They, they need to think beyond themselves um, to what actually would interest other people and what makes your life relat- relatable to somebody else. And you know what? If there's any great aunt Jones listening to this, I'd like to let them into a little without being too harsh. But in my experience, even their families don't really read them. No. Um, so I'll give an example of what my mum did. So she took one of her great aunts and put them into a cozy mystery story oh. and then wrote that. Now, if you wanted to do so she thought about her audience, who was going to read her, why were they reading it, that type of thing. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, she's got her, her yes. great aunt in there. Yeah, and she's so, thinking about the audience. Yeah. yeah. So, all of a sudden, it fits in the genre. People like the mystery. It's fictional, but it's in the same place that, uh, like, it's the place we grew up. So, she can describe all of those type of things. So, you can do a fictional a memoir that then can actually appeal to people because you can put all the exciting bits that didn't really happen. My great aunt, uh, great aunt never uh, found a dead body or solved a murder or married a policeman or any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> but everything else about her life was pretty much accurate. So, Kira, what, so we want to move on to the what we wish we knew before we published. There was so much. Yeah, yeah. so... The, the main thing that I've found um, that it comes down to in terms of publishing that I wish I knew basically is um, marketing. I mm. knew that with the way things had changed that I would be expected to do a lot of the marketing, uh, but the reality is I've had to do all the marketing, uh, or 99.99%. If I'd known that to begin with, uh, I would have approached things from a a slightly different uh, method, perhaps. I would have been um, a bit more vigorous in finding out exactly what that meant I had to do. Because um, marketing, it's not really about necessarily about how much money you spend on Facebook ads and all that. What marketing comes down to is visibility. So whoever you choose to go with, you need to look at how does that make you visible. Uh, And one of the ways that I chose my um, publisher was that I looked at the quality of the authors that they were publishing and these were names that I was familiar with um, like Paul Mannering is the immediate one and I thought right he's a great author I love his books if he's going with this publishing house then if I go with them and they say yes then I'm writing on their coattails essentially yeah. and the more excellent authors that this publishing house has the better it makes me look because it makes me more visible yeah. People are looking for Paul's books, and if they're looking for Piper's books, and they're looking for Lee's books, then my name starts popping up alongside them, and that makes me more visible, just 
for being on on their catalog which is just so easy yeah i I wish i'd looked more at marketing as well it's slightly different for indie because you really do have to do everything yourself um but i knew that going in i just didn't yeah you kind of think that when you start you're going to put your book out there and somebody's going to see the cover and think that oh this is marvelous and, and they read it and all of a sudden everybody's going to spread the word and you'll be famous and like like who knows when <laughs> but it never it's not like that anymore it's like you kind of publish it into the void and yeah. unless you mark it it's going to stay in the void yes and and, and that's the same with um, traditional or indie, yeah, you're basically, you're in the void. It's almost like you have to do something else to draw mm. attention to your story. I mean, like, um, and obviously the uh, the traditional market, a lot of their visibility within themselves relies on awards. They put their books out there, and if the authors get awards, then they're like, okay, this, um, you know, the marketing budget can then go towards this person. But until you've got those awards, it's... Um, think or swim and it's just yeah it's just a uh it's one more way of making you visible i guess um you know if you win an award then it gives you uh something a, a talking point basically or it um says like uh it gives you a bit more credibility says this book theoretically has more value because so-and-so judged it whatever but yeah it's just um another aspect that you've got to think about yeah we were talking uh, before we started the podcast about hoping to get onto the competitions and <laughs> how kind of useless they can be sometimes for actually mm. getting visibility anymore yeah but, yeah and expensive too like, yeah, yeah i couldn't yeah. even apart from the sir julius vogel awards and the um the ones that are connected to the world con which i've forgotten the name of is it no what they call Hugo. Hugo, the that's Hugo. it. Apart from the Hugo and Sir Julius Vogel Awards and the, and the British Science Fiction Association Awards, um, I, I'm not aware of any other awards in our kind of genres. Yeah, yeah, and particularly in New Zealand, there's not because we don't have any of the, the big five locally producing um, New Zealand adult speculative fiction. There's a lot in the um, children and the young adult. And that's why the only um, mainstream awards we have for our genre are the New Zealand Book Awards, which are for children and young adults. So they're, they're not even at our age range. Right. And it's just because the thing is, I don't think a lot of people realise, it's those all book awards essentially are set up by publishing houses themselves. Yes. It's a, a closed system within a closed system to reward the closed system. It's essentially they're, they're patting themselves on the back for, for what they make and it's just that the um the public aren't aware of that so they, that, that it doesn't occur to them um that they are judging their own product yeah. when they i was it. looking at the what calls top 100 that was very disappointing oh um, but the top five did you notice they were all in the top five was all three of them were fantasy books Yes. Um, no, the thing that was disappointing is that they were all like published years and years and years oh, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any yeah. of the new stuff was um, further down the list and things like that. And But that's showing the trend with uh, traditional published books is they're actually spending more money on advertising yeah. their big names. Yes, and, and that's because they know they've got a winning product there. Yep. So it makes more sense for them to put money behind a winner rather than an unknown. And that's why a lot of the time um, when you get published traditionally, if your book doesn't win awards to start off with, essentially they just um, wash their hands of you 
because yep. it's like, right, they haven't made the first grade, um, no point spending any more money on them to get them to the to the to the next level. Well, because they're you know, because you're a nobody, no one knows who you are, it just doesn't make marketing sense for them to continually back nobodies that aren't um that aren't doing well because there's you know there's so many people waiting in line behind you and i mean it is a business yeah so kura what did you wish you knew about marketing before you started all this let me have a look at my list <laughs> it's quite a long list in terms of um because i'm with a, a very small press um you, you need to have a look at what press that you're approaching what they offer the authors and um you, Let's say that you've gotten to the point where they've given you a contract and you're about to sign the contract. If you haven't read through it, it probably doesn't mention in there at all about what their um, yeah obligations are in terms of marketing. And so this is when it's time to ask them, do they have a marketing plan? And ask for specific details. Because if they come back and they say, yes, we've got a marketing plan. Yes, we've got a marketing person. Uh, essentially, you're thinking, woohoo, that's, that's great. They know what they're doing you need specific details make sure that you get some of those specific details put into your contract so that if they don't deliver and your story's going nowhere then you can get out of that contract and or at least put thing, the or at least put the yeah, pressure on put the pressure on you and the thing is it really is a two-way street they want you to do well and because then that way they do well so it is all about negotiating but you do need some kind of you need, you, you need a point to begin with and just having a, a gentleman's agreement that they will market for you, but not actually having any contract or anything to back that up isn't particularly helpful. You just, you need something. And like maybe if they have a newsletter, that kind of thing, you can ask specific questions like how many times a year does the newsletter go out? Will my book be mentioned every time? Or that, um, because I think sometimes what people don't realize is that for, for that first three to six months when your book first comes out, that's when most companies will really be pushing you because that's you're the new t titles. But if you don't make any ground within that time, then you get shunted to the back. And then that's when the marketing you have to do for yourself. Um, so ask if they have a marketing plan for each author. Ask for specific details. If you can, get them put in your contract. Find out if the press have a newsletter. Read it. Check out um, what kind of thing is in it when it comes out. And also ask what their plan is for reviews. So, for example, ask them, will they find the places to have your book reviewed or is this up to you? And if they say they will find them, again, get specific details and ask for recent examples. Find out how many places they're going to approach. Get figures, get names. You want tangible details, not general generalities. If they do, um, sorry, if, if you have to find the reviewers, make sure the press are willing to send a free copy to the reviewer. And this is very standard practice. So if they say no, that's a huge red flag. Um, and just a, a real quick tip is get the name of the marketing person and Facebook stalk them. <laughs> so if, they have, if they have less friends than your grandmother, do not sign that contract. <laughs> no, well, the, the, other, the other thing as well, just to come back, well, not the other thing, just to come back to what you said about contracts. Speaking as um, somebody who regularly looks at contracts in their day job, if yep. something is not in the contract, it doesn't exist. Yep. Yes. Basically, yeah, and that's nothing my point. matters if it's not in the contract. So yeah, that's right. That's my point. Yeah. 
Yeah. Basically, you want to add on there that make sure you read the contract really, really, really closely. Wow. Well, I'm assuming, uh, yeah, maybe that's naive of me, but yeah, I'm assuming that um, everyone yeah. does yep. that. No, yeah, they don't. <laughs> no, people get excited about being published, and so they don't always read the contract. And I, I would yeah. be, I would also say, don't only um, read it yourself, but get someone else yeah. to read it for you. Yeah. So that's in the in the very small chance you've got an agent, you can get them to read it. Um, also, I believe the New Zealand Society of Authors offers a contract yes, service, yeah. um, and I would, you know, strongly recommend if you're a member of NZSA. That would be mm. the best value thing you'd get out of them. Yeah. Mm. And I have to say, um, one of the reasons that I signed with my guys is they have a really fair contract. I've seen a lot of contracts and that usually um, they're, they're full of money grabbing, rights grabbing opportunities. Uh, and my guys had a, a brilliantly fair contract. It really is um, very decent. Some of the big publishing houses, they're now collecting assets like uh, rights to things rather than actually yep. publishing things so you got to be very yeah. careful because they'll take audio and movie rights along with the yep. book and never intend to actually yes. make them yeah. so you That's do right. have to it's read right very closely yeah, and yeah. Um, generally um, the the bigger the press the more rights grabs there are and that's one of the really yep. good things with going with a small press is they don't have all that kind of stuff yeah. Uh, I mean, like my contract doesn't say anything about movie rights or, you know, those kinds of things. But other people that I've seen that have gone with Big Five, yeah, you, you, all of that stuff is gone, You basically. Yeah. I mean, like sometimes they'll be claiming like 70% of your movie rights. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But the other yeah. thing to remember as well is you can negotiate. So just yeah. because you get yeah. a contract and there's stuff in there you don't like, you can ask questions and you can go back to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um, the, the trouble is certainly for myself is, and I'm sure it's the same for most people is, yeah, when you've got that first contract, you don't feel like you've actually got any leverage. If it's your first book, you haven't got a, um, a, a publishing history or a sales figure history to, to go back on in terms of negotiate. So you kind of feel like you've got to um, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, it, is, it isn't that straightforward. And particularly dealing with the smaller press, um, you know, generally these, these people are doing it for the love of it. And so they, you know, if yes. they believe in your book enough to, to publish it, then they're totally willing to negotiate with you because they, yeah, I, in my experience, I found that most of them are very, they're very fair. Yeah, I really wish that I had done more on the marketing, particularly newsletters. Like um, I kind of wrote it off at the beginning, like, ah. Oh, People don't really open up newsletters and they don't really read through them. Yes, they do, surprisingly so. Mm. And I really wish that I had um, collected emails and things like that and created newsletters because that's, yeah, that's the way to go when it comes to that. And the great thing with that is that you can do newsletters for free. And so if you're looking at, like you are saying, Facebook ads and things like that, those can get expensive very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the best marketing stuff is the free stuff and so yeah, yeah. and that's definitely um newsletters is definitely one of the bonuses of indie publishing is because even though my publisher's got fabulous authors with them and you know that's their list i don't have access to that i don't have any of those people's email addresses unless yeah, so i start doing my own one but then again um yeah that puts me right down the bottom again in terms of 
that marketing. I don't I don't have control over that list, even though they've got it. Yeah. Um, people complain about that when they uh, work with Amazon. Amazon keeps everything close to the chest. You don't know yeah. nothing. Yeah. Yes. And so one of them is uh, people can actually follow authors on Amazon. Mm. And the authors never find that out. We don't know yeah. how many follow us or not. And they send out newsletters and we never find out whether they're sending our books out or not. So, yeah, yeah so Amazon can be quite yeah. cagey about things. So, yeah, there are definitely pros and cons when it comes to the, the different things. But the, the main thing for me that I really, really wish it was spent, like, take my time. <laughs> I got yeah. so excited yeah. about finishing a book and putting it out there that I rushed it. Um, if yeah. I had slowed down, I would have done a better cover. I would have uh, spent the time to go and get it edited, which I later did and things like that. But it was really spending the time and also making sure that I got my craft right. Like um, mm. you make so many mistakes on your first book. And I really finished a couple of books that never will see the light of day that I thought I had had everything under my belt. But no, <laughs> I've learned so much more since then. And so if I had to give advice to anybody is to write a series first, sit on it, and then start thinking about publishing because you can go back and tweak things and you'll be so much better by the third or fourth book that you've written. It's scary because you write, invest this huge amount of time in writing a, a series. My early covers were terrible, like shockingly bad. <laughs> and I really wish that I had um, got an editor in earlier that could help me with things like, uh, like I didn't even know what deep um, a third POV was when I first wrote my books. And right. yeah, so that's what I mean by the crafts. And what and, is, yeah. what is yeah. deep point of view? Okay, so if you read old-fashioned fantasy books, they usually have like a narrator type style where they've got this godlike uh, author that yeah, knows know everything. Yep. Well, deep POV is you get rid of that. You're now on somebody's shoulder and you're watching from their point of view. So it's a limited um, point of view, but it's still third person. Third person limited. Yep. Yeah, and so, as, close to you can, as, as close you can get as first person, but from third person point of view. Yeah, oh, that's the cool. The third person point of view is traditionally reasonably distanced. Yeah. First is the closest, so yeah. Yeah, you can still third see person. their thoughts and things like that in deep yeah, yeah. Uh, third POV. So you get all the advantages of the first person, but yeah, without the limitations. Yeah, without the limitations. Yeah, mm. so you yeah. got that coming in there. So yeah. I wish I'd done that, and I wish I'd um, kind of got critique partners and things like that. It's really hard yeah. writing by yourself, but oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I. Like later on, I found out things like uh, the Rain Hall books. Have you seen all those? I don't think so. No. She does these, these little books. I think it's a she. She does these little books that are on specific things. Like, because that was one of the things that I hate about these writing books is they would do the whole thing and they would look at plot and things that I never had problems with plots. I can tell a good yarn. I want to know about the little nitty gritty stuff. So you can write, uh, read a book on how to write fight scenes or how to uh, look okay. at deep POV. So you can look at just the specific aspects that you weak at and just get those ones. And what you were saying about um, not rushing, that's yeah. definitely the bonus um, of traditional because yep. their model is so slow, it <laughs> forces you not to rush. You've got yeah. no other option. 
Yeah. And I think I've heard statistically that for somebody who gets their first book traditionally published, they usually will have 3.6 books lying in their closet. Oh, yeah, at least. That's accurate for me because I think this is like my first book to be traditionally published was the fourth book that I'd written. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, that that adds up. It makes a a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the keeping the series was what I should have done because or I've seen some people do this where they um, try to get uh, traditionally published and then decide to go indie afterwards. And that's not to say that the book is terrible because sometimes it's not. It's just that the publishers aren't looking for your kind of book. And so, yeah, yeah so there's always an option. Um, and that will slow you down. Mm. Yeah. I just think this kind of take your time at the beginning build up your newsletter build up your readers and your fans and then publish that's always I guess that's the thing that I found quite strange it's kind of like you know which comes first the chicken or the egg because I kind of felt like you've got to have a product so that you can market it and yet you can't build up fans and you know you've (laughs) you've got to have a product so you can build up fans otherwise how how do you reach those fans when you haven't got anything to give them that's why yeah that's why i like novellas and short stories because that's the thing with indies is that's how you get your first readers you write something short yeah and i guess it makes sense in terms of what you're saying if you've written the series and you sit on it yeah then essentially you can drip feed out yes and you could wrap a release if you want to or you can do side stories that lead into your main world and then you can do a b testing so you could um do short stories in a whole bunch of different worlds and see which one gets picked up the most by people and then write a series in that one and so yeah there's advantages and disadvantages but yeah you kind of do need to get at least something out there even if it's like serialized i'm just thinking about the martian and how I started off on his website, put it out there, and people were reading just chapter by chapter, and um, they were given feedback, and like, oh, that would never happen, oh, that does happen, and things <laughs> like that, and so now he has a book that NASA scientists go, yep, that's pretty accurate, because yeah. he got all that feedback along the way. Yeah, form of visibility, wasn't it, that blog, yeah. that made him visible, so that became his marketing. Yeah got bad news for people that doesn't work anymore a couple of things that used to work like for instance a perma-free so a permanently free book uh first book in series that used to work in 2010 doesn't work anymore um Mm. other things that used to work was blogging um but now people don't do they do more kind of twitter and facebook and uh kind of like buzzfeed type things rather than going on to following people's blogs so Mm. they yeah there's more traditionally published kind of clickbaity type um, news articles rather than blogs. So those don't work anymore either. Uh, It's partly because there's just so much stuff out on the internet, whereas before the algorithms would actually put stuff in front of people, but they don't anymore because now you just pay for it. So are you saying saying Twitter is still worthwhile? Because, um, you know, I do a bit of marketing in my day job as well as looking at contracts. And certainly from a kind of, campaigning point of view um twitter is dying rapidly um yeah way of getting out there in front of people but is it still the case that for for writing especially science fiction and fantasy i'm not sure i don't like twitter so i don't do twitter (laughs) no i can't say i don't use it either 
No, yeah, so... I, used to, I did have a serious uh, addiction a few years ago yeah. uh, and built up. I've got about 1,200 to 1,400 followers on Twitter, probably still, even though I don't nice. tweet. But um, yeah, and I, I very care. Mention my book to your followers, mate. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have. Maybe I may be one of the last tweets I ever did. Well, that's the nature of the beast when it comes to social media. It's the next yeah, bright, shiny thing. And you yeah. do have to change. But uh, one of the advice that they always give out there is go with the media that you're most likely to engage with because yeah. then you're most genuine and you're most likely to maintain it. The whole thing is consistency. Consistency, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and Facebook's not going to go away anytime soon as a, as a major way of reaching people. No, but they change the algorithms and the way they do things. So yes. um, there's no inorganic um, mm. things anymore. You have to pay to be seen. Yeah, so that's why it's doing a, an author page on Facebook. Yeah, the author page is not too bad. Um, I just wish they would let us do. I've got a pen name and I've got yeah. my real name. I have people follow my page with the author stuff, and yes, I can do smart lists and things like that with them with that. But they don't get to see the stuff as much as they used to. So right, unless true. people engage yeah. with the posts, the uh, yeah. Facebook doesn't doesn't push it out. That's right. And so if you wanted to get out to your to your own people that have followed you, you have to pay. Yeah. Well, there's one other option as well that people are talking about, which is groups. So yes. all public Facebook groups. So yeah. nothing to stop authors um, setting up a group. And it could be a group to discuss a specific book or series, or it could be just for them as, a, as an author. Yeah. And, they, and now you can add pages to groups as well. So you can have your author page in the group. Yes. In the group. Uh, yeah, a little bit marketing tool, I think. Uh, yeah, it is, and but a little bit more curating to do. I think it. Yeah, it too hard. Take, does take work. Yeah, because yeah, uh, that's that's the thing, isn't it? So much of it, it, it all comes down to the individual author. Yeah. Because you want, you know, you want the collective power that a traditional publishing house will give you, but at the end of the day, you don't have any control over what they do which means it goes back to you and then that's when suddenly there's so much work to do that you can't actually get any writing done. Yeah. So you can just put aside a couple of um, an hour or two a day type thing to to really get into that and that's all you would really need. But uh, there's so many things out there to try and I do wonder sometimes, like for instance, uh, Amazon uh, book ads and things like that, I do wonder if it's another form of vanity publishing kind of gimmick where they're just mm. using authors as a, a revenue stream. Revenue stream, yeah. yeah. No question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I haven't, uh, I've tried to tackle those and I've just wasted money instead of actually making money, but yeah. Whereas with newsletters, I've made money rather than wasted money. Oh, that's so, good. So, yeah. yeah. So that's sure still worth, worthwhile. Yeah. Just on that, just on that, Nick, what newsletter program would you recommend to people Ooh, okay so i'm terrible i actually use wix and so the reason i say it's terrible is that wix is kind of you start off free and they give you you can send out three newsletters a um a month free with them and things like that it's really easy to make it look pretty uh, and things like that but it doesn't allow you to do all the cool stuff a lot of the other people do so it's all right if you've got a small list once you get to 
more than a thousand people, I would would recommend something like MailerLite because they allow you to do some really cool automation and all sorts of things like that. Mm. I would um, I would recommend Mailchimp if you fancy having fun with formatting and stuff like that, and that's free up to two thousand subscribers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say um, under that, Substack is a very interesting new provider. It'll always be free, no matter how big your list is. Um, I haven't heard of that one. Charge yeah. for it. Yeah. So um, I've been using that for the Spec for Ken Zeds uh, updates. And um, it's really simple and easy to use. And it does have some basic analytics, which aren't bad. Yeah. And yeah, it's free and nice, looks nice and it's simple and clean as well. And what I must say is that do have a website, do have yes. stuff out there, even if it's just a static page with a list of your books or a link to your Amazon author page, something like that. But please, please. Oh, the other thing that I really uh, wish people would do that um, is claim your author central account. <laughs> mm. the, um, central. Yes. So author central. So you don't even have to, you can be traditionally published and do this. Yes. Yep. I've got that. Yep. So it will put all your books you into an author page. And so it'll list all your things, all your books all, all on one page. So somebody will click on your name and it'll go and it'll list all your books, all your series and things like that. Hmm. And you can link it to your blog and to your website. Yep. And uh, you can do the same on um, Goodreads. Yes. And apparently on um, BookBub too, I think. I haven't looked into that one. Yep, BookBub too. Um, but with Author Central, um, with that one, is they like they will do extra stuff for you if you kind of – but like I have a website with New Zealand Authors and I go and I look up and it's so much easier to go onto their author webs page on Amazon and look at when their books were released because I do new releases from New Zealand Authors. But when I see the ones that have um, no Author Central page, I just go – can I be bothered to slog through mm. all the pages <laughs> to make sure that I've got all the new releases? I often will just leave them and just go into the ones that are easy to do. So is Author Central, yeah. is that an Amazon thing, is it? Or is that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. To do the, tick those boxes when you're doing marketing, like they're, yeah. they want soft yeah. things. Yeah. It's, like, another, it's an, another way of giving yourself visibility. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to. It's not like you're even really doing anything. It's people no. think marketing, you're having to, you know, do a song and dance, and but no, it's just being places where people can find you. Yeah, um, Google Analytics and all of that. Uh, they will do a, a, an info panel next to you uh, when they search up your name, and they use things like the Google Central to um, put information in it. So if you go and populate all those different things. Google will actually give you some algo love, which is always good. One of the things that interests me as a short story writer is uh, submitting to magazines and literary journals. Yeah. Um, so have either of you two done that? How, how's your experience been of that? I have, but I'm terrible. <laughs> I'm terrible at short stories. So I have have tried, but I always get terrible uh, things back. So they actually um, give you a written rejection, like a, non, a non-standard form? Uh, the ones that I usually enter in are, yeah, written sub, uh, submissions and, and they actually uh, get back to me and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm Is very picky. <laughs> no, not helpful at all. Uh. Like, 
like the stuff they've sent back is like okay you are obviously not my audience or things like that and so like because I write pulp my short stories into is tend to be the same style like what I would have read in like uh, chicks and chainmail those type of stories yeah those don't get published anymore so yeah again better off to do them more indie so I actually just made my own anthologies and I made my own collections I was just about to say, yeah, maybe maybe there's a niche there that you should be catering to. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do have my own anthologies for those. But, yeah, I publish that every uh, every two years, which you can do. It, it, there's nothing to stop you from doing that. Um, you just uh, – you, well, you have to find some money to pay them. I pay yeah. – uh, I'm cheeky. I pay in covers. Everybody that uh, manages to get into the anthology gets a cover. And you just go sign up to things like Rylan and things like that. Now, anthology because I was only giving book covers as, as the, the what I was paying, I only was looking for resubmissions. So the people, things that, that they put into other uh, anthologies, and so this was a second a reprint. Mm, that's really clever. Yeah, and that did mean that yeah. I got a lot higher quality coming through. That brings me to another uh, thing about what I wish I knew, like. I was on different critique groups like a fan story and all that back in the day. And there was always these people that had beautifully written stuff and yet they never published. That is, uh, if it hadn't been for my friend that had uh, published, I would have been one of those. I would have been one of those that sat on my stories and never, ever published them, wrote beautiful things that no one ever got to read. And that's one of the things that I'm glad that I kind of did find out eventually was yes yes you can write stuff for people to read you can put it out there and people will read it and enjoy it the fact that you saw your friend doing it made it more real to you that it was a possibility yes exactly because before that I was thinking well I'm writing pop um no traditional uh, publishers ever going to pick it up so I'm never going to get published I'm only writing this for myself and so that's as far as it went and then he was publishing and I was thinking well, I like pulp, so I would read it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure there's other people that are just like me that are nostalgic for the old fantasy and sci-fi uh, books and things like that they used to put out very quickly and and um, <laughs> usually with very horrible covers. <laughs> and uh, But were quite enjoyable short reads type things. So, that's, so there is a market there. It's not massive, but there is a market. What do you say with the self-publishing um, that you, um, you because obviously you're a cover designer and an editor as well, and mm-hmm. you're not going to edit yourself. Um, no. No one can do that. But um, do you design your own covers or do you get people to do them? No, I do my own covers, um, but I do have a critique group that I put them in front of because, yeah, you can't see your own mistakes. And I actually yeah. have uh, two different levels. i got got... Um, a photographer friend that I usually get to look at uh, my covers first and then I got a, a group that specifically are book cover designers who then look at it as well before I put them out there. Um, but no, I don't edit my own stuff. I self-edit and I sometimes cheat and just uh, go uh, with swaps with other authors if I want to bring down costs. Mm. But no, you you miss stuff. You just... Like, I can never see passive voice when I write for myself. All of that, I always miss the that. Like, I can read other people's stuff and pick out all the extra that, but I can never see my own. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think anyone, I don't believe anyone can see their own mistakes. I think that no. you can instantly tell if you download 
because it took me a while. I mean, indie publishing was never something I was snobby about because I come from a background of reading comic books where the indie comics are actually the quality product. The trad published stuff is the kind of dross. Yep. So um, I was never snobby about it, but I must admit the first, when uh, lulu.com first launched, Oh, yes. There was a tie, a tsunami of, of self-published work that had clearly been self-edited. You can tell halfway through the first page if it hasn't had somebody else edit it. doesn't matter how good the writer is. Yeah. Those I would have called uh, vanity, um, and even in, as a self-indie. They've gotten a lot better now. You can't tell the, the indie from the... That's uh, right. Yeah, mind you. Like, talking about the... Uh, groups with the cover designers that critique things there's some people that put up covers and you go oh sweetie just go to professional because <laughs> they're so bad yeah so akura how much say did you get on your because co- I, I do really like the cover on your um book the kingfisher's debt how much say did you get on on that uh i got a hundred percent i actually did the cover for my book um which is uh because yeah because i'm actually uh my day job professional graphic designer yeah being with us being with a small press it would be likely that i'd have some say over the cover whereas um recently the the big five in terms of their covers they're just they're getting is it just me or they're, they're like they're getting worse and worse it's like yeah, they're, they're terrible they're spending less and less on them yeah um, they throw throw the name of the author on the front and big letters and everything else can be blank they don't yeah, care yeah um, so yeah, I was very, very fortunate in that regard that, um, yeah, and initially I just assumed that I'd, I'd give them some ideas and they'd come back and say, this is, this is what we want. This is what we need. But no, they just left it a hundred percent up to me. So, wow. um, but yeah, that's, that, that's not, um, what normally happens. Going back to marketing, one of the things that I struggled with was trying to figure out where my books actually fit because I write clean romance for a lot of my series all the romance books out there, they have covers of half-naked men or things like yeah, that. Yeah, and do. you can't do that for a clean romance because you are marketing to the wrong audience. So trying to market a clean romance in any particular genre is quite difficult. And, yeah, so trying to figure that out was uh, was a mission and a half. I ended up just playing, downplaying the romance in my later series because it was much easier to go with the uh, kind of like the – urban fantasy rather than the paranormal romance and things like that. Something I was just going to say in terms of what I wished I knew, and this is not in terms of publishing, but just in terms of writing in general. I wish that I'd gotten involved with writing groups and critique groups uh, a lot, a lot earlier. Same. Uh, I mean, yeah, essentially as soon as you start writing um, and even, you know, if you're doing it as a hobby, that's fine. But yeah, just find your tribe, get involved with people um because the the quicker you learn to not be precious about your words quicker that you're going to have something which is publishable sometimes you uh, there are groups out there where you pay to um have your work critiqued and things like that totally think that's fine um if you want help getting better there's even groups on fiverr you can go and sign up for things like um fan story critique circle all of those type of things they're great places out there to actually get feedback yeah, you've got to get over the preciousness. Yeah, you've got to get people looking at your story and giving you honest um, and constructive feedback on it. The only way yeah. you improve. 
Me was William Taylor. So uh, the local writers group, I'm not part of them, but they invited William Taylor to do a one-day workshop. And because it was going to cost an arm and a leg, they had to uh, get everybody to pay a certain amount and they didn't have enough people. So they said, oh, Nikki likes to uh, write. We'll get her to come in. And uh, so I went for a day with William Taylor, who was a local author. Man, he ripped into my work. (laughs) (laughs) Just basically, like I have, he said that he had never read anything that had been so overwritten and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And it was painful. From then on, I realized that I was my own worst enemy. I was trying to create writing that I thought people wanted to read instead of writing stories that I would like to read. My first draft is actually closer to what I now publish than what I used to do. I would go through like 16 different drafts before I would uh, finish a story. And that was horrible. I had like six different ways to talk about the color of the green grass. <laughs> it was terrible. Oh, God, Absolutely the, awful. Jordan sort of sends... Yes. And so I needed someone to basically kick me in, in the bum and kind of tell me, no, you need to get off your high horse and, and actually look at your writing with writer's eyes. And yeah, yeah that, so that was the, yeah. the best money I spent, <laughs> but it was painful. That, that mental state where you're willing to accept that advice. Yes. So many people that when you give them advice, they just get really defensive. Yeah. They, because it is, you know, they're still at the stage where the writing is their baby and you can't say anything bad about it, you know, because to them it's beautiful no, no matter um, that it's got a monobrow or whatever. Yes. Well, see, that was the thing. It was my baby that I brought to him and yeah. I've since shelved that book. Yeah. Um, and my first book that I actually got published was just a kind of cool idea that I came up with. And so I wasn't precious about it because it was mm. just this, kind of cool idea if you want to say it sucks that's fine yeah <laughs> I can work on I can work yeah. with that yeah and I so think, I uh, I was just going to say I'm I'm very fortunate because I work in graphic design uh which is essentially commercial art yeah I've already been really desensitized um mm, yeah, of when, course. when people yes. when people criticize what I do I have done I know that it's not personal it's just my design isn't communicating what it needs to. And so yeah. I've always been uh, reasonably open to accepting criticism when I write because, yeah, I know that it's it's not personal. They're just trying to make it better so that it will do its job and function better. Yeah. I do think that if you're going to go for critique uh, at the beginning, get someone that knows what they're talking about. Some of yeah. the worst critique that I've ever gotten was from other amateurs. They knew something was wrong, but yes. they didn't know what was wrong. Like, why? And so it's they would say this is not right and you didn't know what was wrong so you kind of tried different things and you just kind of shooting in the dark type thing so yeah so definitely go with someone that knows his stuff first and mm. with a story that's not your baby because that will hurt <laughs> yeah that's true yeah that's true yeah definitely definitely will hurt yeah. unless you're a cold robot like me so yeah i am as well like, i'm totally desensitized and thick skinned so i just don't I, I just take it all um, on board and take take into I, and take into account the, the stuff that seems constructive and useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I think what you said next as well about making sure you're in with a, a group of people who know what they're talking about is yeah, it's really important because yeah. the first couple of yeah. writing groups yeah. I've been to in Auckland and I have to say an apologies to anyone who might be listening to this is in them. 
people did not know what they were talking about. I've never been in writing groups before where there hasn't been a good mix of um, experienced and less experienced writers. And um, the quality of the feedback was just, it was just a waste of time. Basically. Yeah, you, you, it's like anything. You're so reliant on your teachers. That's mm. right. It's so easy to spread bad habits. Particularly if you've got um, a, a particularly dominant voice. Oh, yes. Pers oh, definitely. Know, personality, that's very much, this is the way it shall be done. So my day job is a school teacher, and so we have to mark uh, kids' short stories and things like that. Me and the HRD, we both are indie published, so we've got high standards there. Uh, on the forum for the English teachers, they had somebody put some work up, and all I saw was the mistakes. And <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, the terrible this, the bad grammar that, they should have done this, and the, the metaphors are, are cliche and all sorts of things like that. And the other teachers are going, oh, yeah, this is a merit. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> I wouldn't even pass it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it so, depends where you're coming from, doesn't it? How much yes. knowledge you've got going with you. Yeah. If I'm critiquing somebody's work, I will try and ask them, if I'm, if I'm not familiar with that person, I'll ask them for what is your background, how much writing have you done kind of thing. And so I basically I'll tailor my response yeah. to where I think that they are at. Yeah, because you don't want to put them off by um, yeah. going in too harshly. Hey, so I just thought we should have um, thought of some homework for this episode and we haven't. No, we haven't. Yeah. Um, start a newsletter. That would be my homework. <laughs> Write a short story, put it up on Book Funnel or Prolific Works, and start a newsletter. That would be my homework, even mm. before you published anything. Because even if you're going to go traditionally published, they really like it when you got a, a a group and things like that, that a platform already created. Yeah, that's that's true, isn't it? Um, well, theoretically, I, I don't know how true it is, but I've certainly heard that. Yeah, that they, um, you know. With with Facebook and Google these days, they, they check you out. They say, yeah. you have a platform already? Well, that's how uh, my cousin, she's got a contract with the Big Five uh, awesome. publishers. Yeah, and it's because she's got a very large Facebook group that follow her and yeah. follow her newsletter and things like that. So, no, you can definitely sweet And they, they approach too. Kind of say, bring some of your stuff in. We want to see it. So you can actually wow. get that kind of uh, people fighting over you if you've yeah. got a good platform you see and the thing is if that was me then i'd be assuming right i've already got this platform and i know they're approaching me because i'm viable that means i'll be able to sell i should probably be doing it myself <laughs> and then i'll get 100 percent of the, the profit yep yeah that is one of the advantages of indie but like you said there are some pros with the yeah. um the traditionally published the, yeah. it's there's no wrong or right way to go when yeah. it comes to this yeah and definitely, um, going traditionally, it has totally opened doors for me. Yeah. Because, I mean, unfortunately, there is still a stigma with self-publishing. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's because I happen to be in a particularly snobby city or whatever. No, nope, um, all the country. I <laughs> but I know that, um, yeah, if I'd been self-published, I would have been ignored. I mean, I've had, um, you know, uh, articles in the newspaper and all that, that kind of thing. And, yeah, I mean, people said to me like oh if it had been self-published you wouldn't have got that um and yeah so it's, it has completely opened doors for me that yeah i just wouldn't have had otherwise and so that has just been invaluable what i do with it now is up to me 
but um, it's certainly given me opportunities. I would not have changed that at all. Yeah, a lot of people are doing hybrid at the moment where they'll have some traditionally published books and then some traditional uh, uh, indie published books. And I think that's the best of both worlds where you can get the 100% um, royalties on some of your books, but you've got the visibility of your traditional books to help you with that. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. And then it means as well, if, you've, if you're one of those very prolific authors and you've, you're sort of writing five books a year, but your publishing company only wants one a year, yep. get the others out there. Yeah. And that's the other thing, when you look in your contract, make sure they don't say that you can't publish any other books with any other publisher or indie publish in that world, because they'll have that in some of them. Mm, yeah. That's a very good point. Because they don't want it to compete. So, for instance, if you're science fiction, if they've made it very broad, they might say that you can't write in any other science fiction genre at all. So you've got to be very careful with your contract when you read it could do is get people involved in the current project that you're working on like uh so some of the things that i put on my newsletter is i might be doing research or um i'll put up a blog post about some of the stuff that i've been looking at and so it'll be peripheral things so yeah and, and then by the time are you writing a sequel to the kingfisher's death i've got one written in my head but whether i actually type it out i haven't decided writing it down is not the easy part that's the hard part Mm. marketing afterwards is, is, seems easy in comparison okay well I'm, I'm going to go and actually what I'm going to do is go and put something on my newsletter the other hope <laughs> is continue promoting the uh, Spectre NZ Auckland critique group oh yes so, I did see that yes we haven't had a huge number of signups which kind of didn't doesn't surprise me because the last time I tried to do something outside of Spectre NZ we didn't and I do think there's just a real issue of Auckland being basically people just get put off because it's too big um so it could be I have to rethink about and so far everyone who's responded says they're up for meeting somewhere in central Auckland it might have to be a central Auckland group well you could um just meet up with the people that can meet up and kind of zoom in everybody else that's true we could use um we could use zoom that's a really good point yeah i wonder if you could use zoom to have a countrywide speaker speak nz critique group 